0: Please pray with me as I pray for us. Our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we do pray in your mercy uh, that you would make us wise, that you would help us to grow in knowledge of your will uh, from your word. Help me now to teach this word uh, truthfully and clearly And gracious Father, help us to receive it as your word, the word of the living God. And through it, put our trust in the Lord Jesus and be moved to live for him. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as a society, we are interested in the future, oriented uh, towards it, uh, trying to anticipate it. We make projections of population growth for town planning, make investment decisions on what might happen to property prices and interest rates. We make policy decisions on what will happen, we think, to the climate, lockdown decisions on projections of viral spread. We're constantly making decisions in the present based on what we think will happen in the future and some are convinced that they know the direction of the future, the direction of human history you might remember from the debate on same-sex marriage or here in the current discussion of climate change, accusations of people being on the wrong side of history. Uh, for example, The Australian reported in 2013 that Adam Banff said Prime Minister Julia Gillard and opposition leader Tony Abbott, both of whom opposed gay marriage, risked being on the wrong side of history. Now, those who talk about the right or wrong side of history are suggesting that history's got an ongoing natural progress towards, well, their favoured goal, liberty or sexual emancipation or their version of moral enlightenment, and that those who oppose that progress, well, will be seen to be on the losing side, foolishly opposing the inevitable on the wrong side of history. And so, of course, they should abandon their opposition immediately and get on board or be crushed by history's momentum. Speaking of the wrong side of history, is, of course, a handy rhetorical ploy. In a society addicted to the idea of progress, it labels your opponents immediately as outmoded, old-fashioned, those who will be left behind. And, of course, it justifies your own repudiation of the values of the past and it frees you from criticism of your desired advance and engagement with the reasons people oppose it because, well, it's inevitable and opposition is futile because it's on the wrong side of history. But, of course, it's also a, a highly questionable view of history and of moral progress in particular. Moral progress isn't inevitable. It comes through individual decisions and hard choices. And history doesn't make inevitable progress in the one direction. Do we want to think of the current global increase in authoritarian governments as inevitable progress? What of the increase in family breakdown is lifelong faithfulness going to be seen to be on the wrong side of history? You know, talking about, warning about, claims about being on the wrong side of history actually claims about the future. They're a kind of prophecy. It says this is where history will end up. But can anyone know that? Isn't the future by definition unknowable with certainty? I mean, the sun may come up with regularity, the seasons roll around, but we don't know what they will bring. Our personal futures are full of uncertainty. In fact, we probably know this so well now in Victoria uh, with repeated lockdowns that it doesn't need illustration. But but think there's poor old Petra Kvitova, the Sheikh tennis player. Won on the court, did the press conference, tripped on the way out, sprained the ankle out of the competition. Oh, going back a bit further, those who planned to retire when the global financial crisis hit. They'd resigned their job, they made their plans to resign the job and then they found they had to work for another couple of years because the money wasn't there. Oh, will I get sick the day before exams or that team selection trial? How will that change my life? Will my holiday plans be scuttled by a new COVID case? So many uncertainties in our lives. And the affairs of nations are uncertain too. Will our export markets be cut off? Will we be caught up in a conflict? Will a changing climate destroy our prosperity? Who can know the unknowable? Who can know what is the right or wrong side of history? Daniel 2 has a lot to say about what you need to know the unknowable. And that's because at its hearts the king's dream, which, like the future, is ordinarily unknowable, inaccessible to others, as we heard the wise men protest, and also because the king's dream, as we heard, concerns the future. In fact, what we see in the chapter is that in a display of God's power and wisdom, Daniel makes known the unknowable through the unknowable. And what we'll see is that Daniel's able to do that. He's able to know the future, to have sure knowledge of the ordinarily unknowable, Because of three things, three things that you need to know the unknowable. Wisdom from God, which can only come through relationship with God and revelation from God. Let's look at these. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams that troubled him and sleep deserted him. Verses 1 to 4 set the scene dreams were, an impo- were important in ancient societies, understood as a way that the gods or the spirits of the ancestors could communicate with people to warn or direct them. We see that with Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis. And so dreams and their interpretation were part of the study of the professional class of wise men. The group summoned in Verse 2, magicians, mediums, sorcerers and chaldeans, professional advisors found in every ancient Near Eastern royal court listed here by their subspecialties. These men had dream books that contained a record of past dreams and their interpretation to guide the interpretation of new dreams. Books which taught the interpreter to look for certain themes and motives which had an accepted meaning which would allow them to interpret the dream. And they come at the king's summon and they proceed as usual. Tell us the dream and we'll give you the interpretation. Give us the data, they say, and that's the way the system worked. You give us the data and we'll employ our expertise and years of study to give you the meaning, to make a suggestion. But Nebuchadnezzar doesn't want to play by the rules of the game. My word's final if you don't tell me the dream and its interpretation, you'll be torn limb from limb and your houses will be made a garbage dump. He's a man who is used to getting his own way. He demands that they tell him the dream itself and then the interpretation. Well, of course, the professionals think this is entirely unreasonable. I think Pat's the king's misunderstood. So they asked to be told the dream again. And now we start to see the reason behind Nebuchadnezzar's unreasonable request. I know for certain you're trying to gain time. You've conspired to tell me something false or fraudulent. He distrusts them, thinks they will tell him anything and rely on the passing of time for things to change or for the king to forget. Nebuchadnezzar wants certainty to know that they can give him a true and sure interpretation. And for that, well, he demands that they tell him the dream. You see, he wants to be able to check their truthfulness against something he knows, the dream, before he accepts what they say about something he does not know the interpretation. And it's reasonable, isn't it, to test somebody's trustworthiness before you believe what they say, especially about the unknown future. And it's actually a reasonable test. The dream comes from the gods, and so the true interpretation can only come from the gods. And so if these wise men have access to the gods for the true interpretation... And if they don't, how can they claim they know for certain what the dream means? Well, they would have access to that same source for the dream as well. But, of course, what seems reasonable to the king, the wise men protest is completely unreasonable. No one on earth can know what the king wants to tell him. That kind of knowledge belongs, verse 11, to the gods. The source of dreams. And you can't go knocking on their door to ask, and their dwellings, not with mortals. Up till now, they say everyone's accepted. That's unreasonable to expect us to give an interpretation without giving us data to interpret. What they're doing is actually conceding what the king feared. They don't really know their interpretations or guesses and he is angry. They're useless, he thinks. They're defying his commands. Off with their heads. But, of course, they speak an important truth to us. You see, there are some things unknowable to humans. There are real limits to human understanding and certainty about some things, like dreams or the future, is not possible. We're left, just as those wise men with their dream books were left, with probabilities, with maybes based on experience, the interpretation of the past, to know for sure what's unknowable. You need, as they say, wisdom, not from books and study, but from the source. For them, that was the gods. For us, of course, it's we'll see in this chapter the living God. And, of course, to go to the source would mean you have to have a relationship with that God. You have to have access to that God. And, of course, that's something these Babylonian wise men did not have to their gods, for they were no gods. Now, Daniel and his friends get caught up in the purge, but unlike the Babylonian wise men who only provoke the king's anger, Daniel shows he is really wise. Verse 14, he doesn't inflame the situation. (laughs) He answers Ariok with tact and discretion, the soft answer of Proverbs that turns away wrath and he acts with confidence in God, verse 16. He seeks time, but he's confident he can bring the dream and its interpretation. You see, Daniel has faith in the true and living God, and by faith he has a relationship with the God who can be called upon, who can reveal mysteries. Returning to his house, he and his believing friends turn to their God, seeking mercy and the granting of knowledge of the king's mystery. And God grants their prayer. And in his praise of God for granting their prayer, in revealing the mystery, we see the God of Daniel, the God Daniel turned to. He is, verse 23, the God of his ancestors, the God of Israel who had called Israel into a covenant relationship with himself. Verse 20, wisdom and power, the two things this chapter is most concerned with belong to him. Power. For as the living and only God, He rules human history. He changes times and seasons. That is, He determines the eras and epochs of history, ending one dynasty, exalting another. He makes the future. His is power. And he has wisdom. He is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. All true knowledge comes from him. And he can see where our vision cannot penetrate, make known what is unknowable to us, verse 22. He reveals the deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. Having wisdom and power, The true God can give that to his servants, his faithful people. Verse 23, Daniel praises him for giving him wisdom and power. Daniel's God's almighty, all-knowing and near to his people and so he can make known, reveal what is unknowable to us. Well, having had the mystery revealed to him, Daniel goes to the king with the interpretation of his dream and in the process he actually saves those wise men of Babylon whose wisdom could not save themselves. Confident in his knowledge, he responds to the king's question, are you able to tell me the dream I had in its interpretation by making clear the source of this knowledge is not in himself, in his own wisdom or insight? No wise man, medium, magician or diviner is able to make known to the king the mystery he asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and has let King Nebuchadnezzar know what will happen in the last days. See, this knowledge doesn't reside with people, not just because it came in a dream, but because, as we see, it concerns the future, what will happen in the last days. God alone can reveal what the king wants and needs to know and he's now revealing it to him through Daniel. God is the source of the dream and God alone can reveal its interpretation with certainty, can alone reveal the future with certainty. So Daniel now recounts the king's dream to give him assurance of the interpretation that will follow. It was, as you heard, a dream of an awesome statue composed of a succession of materials varying in value and strength gold, silver, bronze, iron. But the focus, verse 24, of the dream is on the end, the stone which human hands had not touched, which strikes the statue and reduces it to chaff and grows to fill the whole earth. Now it was a disturbing dream, and Daniel proceeds to give its interpretation, its meaning what God is revealing to the king through his dream. Now, there's been a lot of ink spilled in trying to identify each kingdom spoken of with specific kingdoms and empires in history. For example, the Babylonian, Persian, Greek, the emperor of Alexander and his successors, and Roman stand for, some people say, the gold, the silver, the bronze, uh, the iron. Uh, That kind of identification also involves the interpretation of chapters 7 and 8 and 10 and 11. But step back and try and hear the interpretation as Nebuchadnezzar would first hear it and as Daniel's readers would have first heard it. When you do that, you see the emphasis actually falls on the first kingdom, a little bit of the fourth and the end, really on the first and the end. This was the dream. Now we will tell the king its interpretation. Your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heavens has given you sovereignty, power, strength and glory. Wherever people live, or wild animals or birds of the sky, he has handed them over to you and made you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. Now we might be puzzled by this emphasis on Nebuchadnezzar as we've seen many empires come and go since the Babylonian. But this is not flattery. It reflects Nebuchadnezzar's importance in God's purposes. You see, Nebuchadnezzar is the first pagan king to rule Israel, to control their destiny. With Nebuchadnezzar, the history of the people of God is actually caught up into world history, into the rise and fall of empires. And Daniel makes clear that this triumph and splendour is actually the gift of God. Just as subsequent chapters will make clear that Nebuchadnezzar is actually subject to the rule of God, the God of Israel. As the head of goal the lessons the Lord teaches Nebuchadnezzar will actually be true for all human kings. And in Nebuchadnezzar, God's people learn the truth of the Lord's sovereignty over all rules. No following king will be greater than Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold. Then, of course, we have a succession of inferior kingdoms culminating in the fourth who had feet of iron mixed with clay. Uh, That succession speaks of the impermanence of earthly kingdoms and empires. Each in its turn may look strong, look like it's going to be here forever. They might even believe that about themselves, but they'll pass. And in the fourth kingdom, God reveals the frailty inherent in earthly power. It's strong, but it has weaknesses within it in its very make-up. It's unable to forge that unity that can sustain it. But before it collapses under the weight of its own instability, our attention is directed to the rock which no human hand has touched. In the days of those kings, the God of heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end but will itself endure forever. You saw a stone break off from the mountain without a hand touching it and it crushed the iron, bronze, fire, clay, silver and gold. The great God has told the king what will happen in the future. The dream is certain and its interpretation is reliable. The end, the goal of history is here revealed and it does not come from within history but from outside history. There's no historical progress, necessity, sorry, no inevitable progress to this goal. Its arrival is unknowable from history, not able to be predicted on the basis of past experience. It's the free act of God establishing his kingdom himself, a kingdom for God's people enduring forever. And it will have no rivals, no competitors. Its coming will mean the end of all independent, idolatrous human rule. Their power will be gone forever leaving no trace. God's people know the end of history, and as we'll see, they know what cannot be known for sure, not because they've been told, like Nebuchadnezzar, the unknowable, being assured of the truth of Daniel's interpretation by being told first the dream. No, God's people know the end of history for sure because they have seen the beginning of its fulfilment in the ministry, death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. But Nebuchadnezzar does know he has been told the truth, that he had been given the interpretation of his dream from God by God. He's actually more impressed with the fact of the interpretation than its content. A pagan, believing that heaven was populated by many gods, he now acknowledges Daniel verse 46 and honours him as a messenger of the gods, as a messenger of the supreme God, the God of gods, who is also the Lord of history, he says, the Lord of kings, whether they believe in him or not. Nebuchadnezzar confesses power and wisdom, you see, belongs to Daniel's God, as Daniel had said. And he showers gifts on Daniel and rewards him with a preeminent place in his bureaucracy. In so doing, he sets the scene for the chapters that will follow in this book by exposing Daniel and his friends to the jealousy of those whose lives God, in his mercy, has saved through Daniel. But we'll hear more of that in the weeks ahead. Daniel, wise because he has a relationship with the living God and relies on the revelation of God to know the unknowable, is vindicated. You could say he finds himself, at least for now, on the right side of history. Human knowledge is limited, limited by our own embodied finiteness. There are some things we just cannot know. Oh, perhaps one day with functional MRIs and brain mapping, we might be able to penetrate dreams, predict what they are. But we will never know the future with certainty. All we can do is make predictions based on our knowledge of the past Yet our knowledge of the past and chains of causation is never comprehensive. Have we selected the right variables, made the right assumptions? All we have is probabilities and maybes distorted by our ignorance and sin. Or more? You see, God can act within history from outside history. He is not subject to... our modelling. He can do things we cannot imagine. He can come amongst us as a man, bring life from death, even as he can bring something from nothing. To know the unknowable future with certainty, to know the end of history, who will be on the right or wrong side of history, we need the wisdom of God, God who is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, who knows all things. We need the wisdom of God given in relationship with God through the revelation of God and that is what we have in the Lord Jesus Christ who can say of himself as he said to John I am the first and the last the living one I was dead but look I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. You see the Lord Jesus knows it all. He has unconquerable life. His knowledge is not limited by time and unconquerable power. He decides where people will stand at the end. He has the keys of death and Hades. And that's one reason why Paul says all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. In him, in the Lord Jesus, we have what we need to be wise. We have relationship with God and we have received the revelation of God. And so trusting him like Daniel, we can be amongst the wise for on the right side of history at the end. And in the gospel, we see that in Jesus we have confirmed the end of history, the kingdom Daniel spoke of. The kingdom of heaven, as we're hearing in Matthew, is at the heart of Jesus' ministry. He takes up Daniel's vision and he says that the kingdom is near in his ministry, in his presence, it has erupted into history already. And he teaches us about that kingdom. He teaches us how even now it's filling the earth. It's like a mustard seed that a man sowed and grows taller than all the other trees so that the birds of the sky come and nest in its branches. It's like leaven that works through the whole lump. Even now it is filling the world. Oh, and yes, he teaches us of the end, of that day when evil is removed. It's like a large net that's thrown and collects every kind of fish. So will it be at the end of the age. They'll go out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the blazing furnace where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That kingdom does not come through human effort from human possibility from within history nor is it predicted by human wisdom. Rather, it comes from what Paul says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no human heart has conceived. It's established by the power and wisdom of God revealed in the death on the cross of our Lord Jesus. The wisdom and and power which seems to be weakness and folly to us, but it's unconquerable and it reveals a kingdom, a reign, that no human power can rival or overthrow. Who will, in the end, be seen to be on the right side of history? Well, only those who are wise by receiving the revelation of God. Those who conform their life now to the end, the goal of history, to the goal to which the living God, the God of gods, is moving all history and will bring by his own mighty work the establishment of his reign over all, when every knee bows to the Lord Jesus and when all sin and wickedness will be removed and human pride will be no more. It's the goal which is revealed to be certain in the ministry and resurrection and raising to his right hand of his son Jesus. And that means if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, you need to get right with him so that you're ready to meet him. And you can only get right with him by listening to him. So whoever else you're listening to, whatever assurances they are giving you about the future, no, they are just guesses. They can't know what they cannot know. But God, who knows the future because he creates the future, says now is the time to turn back to him. Before that, future arrives Now's the time to be ready for the end of history by trusting the Lord Jesus in history, believing now what he says, calling upon him now for mercy. You can do that now. You can do that at home. He lives. He'll hear you. But if you want to know more, get in touch. But if you're a believer, knowing only God can make known the unknowable and seeing the end of history in the establishment of the kingdom of heaven... Is an encouragement to keep living wisely by keeping on trusting the Lord Jesus. As Paul says, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, and established in the faith just as you were taught, overflowing with gratitude. Don't be unsettled by those who suggest that. Christian faith and life are outmoded or on the wrong side of history will inevitably be steamrolled by what they see as progress. Those who call you to abandon loyalty to Jesus, to get on board with what they think is the irreversible flow of human history towards their vision of the good life. They claim to know what they cannot know. For history's end does not come from within history. Only God knows and God has revealed and God will bring the glorious kingdom of his son. So keep being wise, living in relationship with the living God through believing the gospel of his son Jesus, confessing him Lord, and having your future and present informed by the revelation of God. And you know that way, like Daniel, you'll actually save lives by making the revelation, the gospel of Jesus known so that people can turn to him. Oh, and you'll bring acknowledgement of the goodness of the wisdom of God by the quality of your life as you live in obedience to God. Live out the teaching of that Sermon on the Mount and you'll come to share in the future of the wise, the future revealed to Daniel at the end of the book. Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life and some to disgrace and eternal contempt, those who have insight, who are wise will shine like the bright expanse of the heavens and those who lead many to righteousness like stars forever. You'll come to share in the future of the wise and to be raised with Christ. Well, that is to be on the right side of history. I'm going to pray and then Dawn will lead us in prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, We thank you that with you is wisdom and power and you reveal to us what we could not know for ourselves, that the dark and uncertain future is light to you. And we thank you for revealing the end, the kingdom of your son. And we thank you in our Lord Jesus for giving the revelation of that kingdom content, that the day will come when every knee bows to him and he is glorified and raises his people to live with them in the new heaven and earth and removes all wickedness and evil from your presence. We thank you for that revelation of the end and we pray in your mercy that we would be wise. We would listen to him and conform our lives to all that he says because we trust him. And so, Father, we pray that being wise, we also, like Daniel, would bring others to confess that you are the true and living and only God, the God of gods and Lord of kings. In Jesus' name, amen.